Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. An update on the tragic killings in London. Will vaccine hesitancy stop us from reaching our goals? There's plenty of polling being done to figure out how we feel during a pandemic. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Our hearts go out to London, Ontario today. Canadians must unite against all forms of racism. Let's celebrate our similarities rather than focus on our differences. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 12.11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do that. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. All right. Uh, let's go to London, Ontario, and just the tragic, tragic, uh, uh, what has happened to this family uh uh literally mowed down it appears uh by a 20 year old the family uh the father and the mother the daughter uh grandmother uh, succumbing to injuries as a result of this uh this intentional uh killing it appears and a 9 year old boy uh still surviving in hospital it is uh just a bizarre scenario and here is uh NDP leader uh Jagmeet Singh on the Bill Kelly show this morning talking about it it is tough to to come to grips with the reality of what what goes on in Canada, uh, uh, this horrific mauling of these of, of this family, this is a part of of the reality of Canada as well. We we are in a place that we we have racism. As much as Canadians are polite and lovely people, racism still exists in Canada, and people are afraid to walk out in their communities because they might be attacked for how they look. That is a reality. We can accept those realities and then work to improve them. Uh, that is NDP leader Jugmeet Singh. Let's bring in Sawyer Bogdan, reporter for Global News, uh, Global News Radio in London, 980 CFPL, and is with us now. Sawyer, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. So, uh, what a just a tragic day. What's the mood like in London right now? Um, you know, I think it's very somber. I think everybody's um, very sad that this happened in our own community, and I think. Um, we had a reporter out on scene, and she says a lot of people are are still in shock that this happened so close to home. What is the latest on this? What What is the latest information that you have? Uh, let's start with the family. Well, we know that um, the lone survivor, the um, their nine-year-old son is still in hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries um and we know that recently um earlier today the prime minister declared this a terrorist attack um so that's what we know so far so um we uh obviously know that the the one boy nine years old has survived from what we understand this family was just out for a walk they were just walking the way many of us have been doing during this a global pandemic and, you know, a, a fine and upstanding family from what we're hearing. 
Yeah, uh, a number of people um, ha- who knew the family have spoken out, said this is this is a regular thing that most families are doing. I think as the weather's gotten better, um, a lot of people have wanted to get out and enjoy the fresh air. And on a Sunday evening, it, it wasn't unnormal for the family just to be walking down the street in their own community. So... Um... <laughs> Set the scene for us again. Uh, obviously, this family out for a walk. This this truck just veers off and and aims at the family and then continues on. And I understand the suspect apprehended with relatively no issues. Yeah. So Sunday night at around eight forty um, p.m., we know emergency crews and police were called to the intersection of Hyde Park and South Carriage Road. Uh, just um, south of Gainsborough Road, um, and witnesses saw a black pickup truck veer off the road, go over the curb, uh, hit the family, and then drive back onto the road, and he kept going for several miles. Um, he parked at Cherry Hill Mall, uh, where he was apprehended about six kilometers from the scene. He was apprehended by police, um, and suspects say he appeared to be wearing what looked like um, body armor. So what more do we know uh, about this person that's been arrested? Now um, we know that it's a 20-year-old Londoner named Nathaniel Veltman. He was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder, um, and he appeared in court on Monday. He's still in custody, and he's scheduled to appear in court again on Thursday. Uh, we're still trying to find out more information on him, um, but it appears, um, it obviously, from this, it does appear that it was um, intentional. He didn't appear, We don't. there's no ties that he knew the family, um, but it does appear that he targeted them because of their faith. Do we know anything about his background, uh, social media? Uh, you know, is there uh, is there a, a series of of posts or anything like this that would that would indicate this hate? We haven't. Uh, nothing's been found yet. There doesn't appear to be much about him on social media. Uh, so so much about him is still unknown at this time. What about uh, family in the area? Does does he have family in the area? We believe so, but again, there's not many, it's still very soon, and there's not many uh, details known about him, but he does, um, his family, he lives in London, and he appears to have grown up in the area. But haven't heard from any acquaintances of his, or friends, or anybody coming forward to speak up uh, about him? Uh, Not at this time. Uh, it appears that uh, obviously this happened um, and there wasn't a lot of information coming out, still isn't a lot of uh, information coming out about uh, uh, about the suspect, yet police have uh, obviously called this a hate crime. The Prime Minister uh, holding a news conference now referring this to a terrorist attack. But any idea what sort of organization or, or what has led them to arrive uh, at this conclusion, other than the fact it was a Muslim family? Um, you know, I think there, there's not much information we do know from their sides. I think there might have been um, comments he made to police for them to jump at that statement. But again, right. it's so early on that we don't know that much. Right. Do you any idea when police are going to release any more information on this? They haven't told us 
yet when more information will be coming out, unfortunately. Uh, any idea if uh, this is like a lone wolf type of thing? Any more other people on the radar that you know of? We haven't heard of there being anybody else involved um, right now. It does appear at this time um, that he acted alone. Man, this is incredible. Um, so we understand there's a, a vigil tonight. Uh, what is happening? Can you give us, uh, give us any information there? Yeah, at 7 p.m. tonight, there is going to be a vigil held at the London Muslim Mosque. It's going to be outside in the parking lot um, to, for COVID safety, but we do know that a number of politicians will be attending. The Prime Minister will be here, um, the NDP leader, um, also the Conservative Federal leader and um, Premier Doug Ford uh, will all be in attendance uh, to pay their respects. And how has the community reacted uh, to this? Are you expecting a lot to come out tonight? It's it's hard to say how many people will actually come out, but um, I think the community is really saddened by this. Uh, It's hard. A lot of people have been paying their respects by the vigil since it happened over the last two days. Um, I think it's important to note that London has a really well-established Muslim community. Um, London is home to the first mosque that was set up in Ontario. So the the Muslim community has been here for a long time. It's it's a very large and robust one. Um, So I think this hurts hurts, uh, everybody to hear of this happening. So is, is there, has there been a history of these sorts of attacks? I guess we hear of them per, uh, periodically everywhere uh, across the land, but is, has this been an, an issue of late in London? I don't know. If, I wouldn't say it's been an issue of late in London, um, but I think the general issue of Islamophobia has been growing. We've been seeing it growing across Canada. Mm. There's been attacks in um, other communities, uh, in Quebec especially, with the mosque shooting, um, I wouldn't say we've necessarily been noticing a lot, uh, a growing number of these in London, but obviously it has since happened now. So I think it really is awakening to reveal to people that Islamophobia is real and it's in our community right now. Uh, obviously, uh, a, a vigil tonight at seven o'clock. You were saying the prime minister, the premier, other uh, uh, other politicians will be there, and, and I'm sure. Uh, uh, officials with the town and religious communities and such. Uh, what about security for that event? Obviously, the premier has waived or is going to waive any sort of uh, social gatherings, so the uh, regulations, so this can actually happen. Um, any idea of how London police are are uh, planning for this? We haven't gotten uh, a detail. I can't comment on details about that yet. Um, I think everything's still coming together. And uh, anything more from the community, what they're saying, uh, and and the outpouring of, of grief that we're obviously seeing across the country and, and in London, uh, what's the message here? Um, I think the message here is that we condemn what's happening. I think it's really important to note uh, that yesterday, as more details came out, uh, both the mayor and, and police described it as a hate crime, and I think it's sad to see it happen here. Islamophobia is real, but I think that I'd like to say the majority of Londoners condemn what's happened and they're very saddened to see it happen to their neighbors. And this seems to be getting worldwide attention as well, doesn't it, Sawyer? It does, yeah. I think it's, I think that really speaks 
to people um, hopefully coming together against um, hate crimes and people being targeted for their faith. Sawyer Bogdan with us, reporter for Global News Radio in London, 980 CFPL, and of course, uh, watching the story and developments that come out of the uh, horrific, horrific murder uh, in London of a uh, Muslim family, four, and a young boy, nine years old, still in hospital. Sawyer, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Here is today's daily commentary. The great news continues in Ontario. Numbers have been trending down for a while since mass vaccines arrived in Canada last month, and provinces have got them into arms of willing Canadians. As a matter of fact, so far, already 72% of Ontarians have had their first shot, and the process is being sped up to decrease the time between the first and second dose, hoping for a two-dose summer. So as of Friday, here's what you can do. You can gather with up to 10 outdoors. Yes, even with other families. Patios open, four per table. Retail openings with restrictions. Outdoor sports opens up with up to 10. Plus, day camps, campgrounds, Ontario parks, horse racing, speedways, outdoor pools, zoos, splash pads open. It's amazing how little can make us feel so good. But we'll take it during a global pandemic. Cheers. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Look at this. 469 new cases in Ontario uh, as the numbers continue to uh, move down, which is uh, great news. And, of course, uh, up over 70%, uh, 72% or so uh, are vaccinated, which is uh, great news. Now it's getting the second dose and uh, making that happen uh, in, uh, in well as quickly as we can in order to stop variants. Let's bring in Dr. Lawrence Small, infectious disease specialist and medical director of infectious prevention and control with Trillium Health Partners and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, thanks for having me. Good to be here. So your thoughts on the numbers continuing to decline? This has got to be positive. We must be feeling a little better nowadays. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, these are these are really good signs. Um, even over the last week, um, the numbers uh, have really started to drop uh, quite quickly. So, um, you know, really uh, just goes to show how effective the, the, the vaccine is and um, how public, med- med- public health measures um, have been working. Uh, and even in, in the hospital now, which, which was lagging a little bit behind, which we would expect in the hospital now, we are seeing uh, the numbers coming down and uh, we're into numbers that we haven't uh, seen uh, since before the third wave or uh, even even you know before the second wave so um, so things are looking looking much better. The ICU numbers are still somewhat disproportionately elevated um, and uh, so this is still lagging um, so that 's just something we have to really be cognizant of because uh, it 's still putting pressure on the uh, the health system and obviously uh, covid nineteen patients have a tendency to stay a bit longer from what we understand once they 're in ICU. Yeah, you know, once once you've made it to that point when you're in the ICU and especially on a on a ventilator, uh, your length of stay is probably going to be longer. Um, but uh, fortunately, uh, you know, even though our our ICU numbers are high or or moderately elevated, uh, the number of deaths um, have 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 really uh, been reduced. So 
so there is a turnover, and people are getting discharged from the ICU, and they are getting discharged from the hospital. So that's that's really good news. So obviously, we're seeing uh, vaccination rates up over seventy percent now in uh, most parts of the country. What can we do with our first shot? Is there is it a false sense of security here, doctor? Well, I don't think it's a false sense of security. There, there, there is a lot of benefit uh, from even just having the, the single shot. Um, but you do have that extra assurance with the second shot. Uh, specifically, uh, you're obviously going to get the full benefit of the, the booster effect. And, and you're also, uh, very importantly, uh, going, to, going to get the longevity of immunity. Um, where the question still arises, obviously, is, is with, with the, the variant of concern, specifically the Delta variant. Um, we know that on an individual basis, um, you know, one shot uh, for the Delta variant uh, may not be uh, as uh, effective in preventing infection than two shots. Uh, but, but, you know, this is, this is the piece that, you know, try to drive home. We've kind of We've kind of, you know, through the media and all we talk about, we've kind of driven the point home that effectiveness is, is somehow measured in whether you get the infection or not. But in reality, the, the, the effectiveness of the vaccine uh, is, if you get infected, how severe it is. Uh, and, and even one shot of the vaccine is incredibly, infect, incredibly effective uh, at preventing people from getting severely ill or ending up in the hospital if they do get infected. And also, most likely, if a person is infected uh, and they have had one shot, they're going to be less likely to be able to transmit that virus because the viral load will be lower. So there is a lot of benefit to, to one shot. Certainly, we want everybody to get their second shot, and we need to, need to get this done. But there's, there's still benefit to the single shot. Uh, there's now chatter, and I guess has been for weeks now, on what needs to be in place, what needs to happen in order for the U.S.-Canada border to uh, open. Um, the Prime Minister has said 75 uh, in Canada, 75% uh, uh, fully vaccinated, or sorry, first shot, and 25% uh, second shot in order for the border to be open. Uh, however, wants all uh, Americans who come into Canada to be fully vaccinated. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, so you know, I, I think the talk now is is the right way to be going. Obviously, we're coming up on a point where uh, we're going to have a population that's vaccinated. The U.S. Uh, has a population that hopefully will be vaccinated. I mean, they are largely are vaccinated, but they have you know pockets that aren't. Um, and so now's the time to to really start talking about how this is going to be operationalized. And, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be a, okay, today everybody is free to go through the border. Um, I think a lot of planning has to go into place. Um, and obviously there's going to be new questions at the border. Uh, there might have to be proof of vaccination. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's something that's probably going to have to happen in a, in a staged fashion over, over the summer. Um, I personally, uh, you know, I would want to be fully vaccinated uh, before even thinking about traveling. Um, but, uh, you know, that's something that's just going to have to be incorporated uh, into all this. And certainly if there's movement, uh, you know, between the U.S. and Canada, I, I, I do think that 
um, people going over to the states or people coming from the states should be should be fully vaccinated, um, and uh, and it certainly should be uh, should be part of uh, what's required. We have seen uh, the U.S. go from zero to uh, to hero in, in a matter of uh, weeks and months at the beginning of all the, the vaccination rollout. We remember back then President Biden saying, you know, he wants everybody uh, opened up by the uh, uh, by the long weekend in the summer. Obviously, they're they're ahead of that. Now the goal is 70 percent fully vaccinated in the U.S. Uh, that's when they were still ramping up supply and production and such. Uh, now it seems to be one of hesitancy that's stopping them from getting to that that uh, mark that the president was was hoping for. How concerned are you with uh, variants and those that are hesitancy uh, hesitant now that hesitancy is has uh, come into the conversation as there is appears to be enough vaccine? Yeah, I, you know, it, I, I think we're going to see a leveling off, and that's probably going to happen everywhere. It'll, it will probably happen. Uh, in Ontario as well, and and, and throughout Canada, um, and um, yeah, it's 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 going to be an issue. You know, we're 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 thinking that you know you, we're going to need at least seventy percent of people fully vaccinated to really have the full benefit uh, of of having uh, a critical mass of immunity, um, and uh, and we have to get there. Uh, and then those uh, people who who aren't um, vaccinated. Uh, are still going to be vulnerable, and um, there are going to be a, a risk uh, to others as well. Um, so I, I really think, you know, we, we still have to do our best to get the message out. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has kind of gone from zero to 60 in, in three seconds, and, and you know, watching the hockey games, uh, there have capacity crowds now, mm. um, and I, I think there is that somewhat false sense of everything is all right and you know i hope it is all right but but you know i don't think we're quite there yet and here in canada and in ontario we've kind of gone a little bit more measured um and um kind of put the the onus of reopening uh, on the population uh, rather than on the individual um and, and i do think that's the right message I, you know i think i think we're trying to encourage uh, each other uh, to really be out there and watching out for each other and, and so we can get back to a normal life here. Obviously now the key is to to speed up the time between the first and and the second doses and, and you know from all intents and purposes that's what we're, we're seeing. There's also been some discussion about speeding up the second doses in hot spots in order to uh, curb the variants. But a CTB doctor said today that it's less about the second dose and just about getting the first dose into people. How do we make sure hot spots aren't hot because of hesitancy? What more do we have to do to get this into arms of Ontarians? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I do agree that, um, you know, making sure everybody gets that first dose is, is really important. Uh, but we do know that uh, we, we have vulnerable areas um, and, and we still have the wild card of, of new variants, specifically the, the Delta variant uh, in, in specific areas in Ontario uh, and, and, uh, and Peel region and the GTA. Um, and, and so it does make sense to, to really have a targeted approach uh, in terms of, of getting people 
uh, appropriately uh, dosed with their second dose of vaccine uh, and really encouraging people to do so. Um, you know, in terms of hesitancy, uh, we are reaching that point where hesitancy uh, is becoming a real issue. Uh, things are somewhat slowing down uh, in terms of the uptake. Um, and, um, you know, it is going to become easier for people to get that second dose because we're going to have less demand for that first dose as hesitancy comes mm. in. So I really think we have to work on that um, and, um, and, and really encourage people to still get their first dose. We're not, we're not out of it yet. Um, but at the same time, if we do have the, uh, the capacity to do so and we, we do have the resources to do so, we should really be targeting uh, specific areas to, to get that second dose. Uh, there's been lots of discussion around a vaccine passport and how do, does one prove whether they're vaccinated or not, or, or is there some sort of universal system uh, that should be in place for all of this? As we talk about things like borders and having, you know, uh, Americans fully vaccinated, Canadians 70 or 75 percent uh, with the first dose or, or what have you, is there going to be a need? for uh, some sort of vaccine uh, certificate of, of sort? Or is this the sort of thing that, um, y- you know, we necessarily don't need to government regulate, but business themselves will do it? They'll make up their own minds, whether, you know, if you want to come into this concert, you got to be fully vaccinated. If you want to do this, you got to be fully vaccinated. Where do you think that discussion is going to go? Yeah, I think this is the type of thing where, you know, whether it's needed or not, uh, or whether it's appropriate or not, like you said, it is it is going to start coming up, um, and it's going to come up in silos, uh, and you're going to get, you know, various businesses or or, or the border uh, that says, you know, prove to us that that you are vaccinated, and I think it's going to end up becoming a matter of necessity. Um, so I, I do think there's probably going to have to be work done on this now. Uh, from from a higher level, so that it is it is standardized. Uh, otherwise, uh, it, it's just going to be the wild west, and um, you know everybody's going to do it on their own. Uh, and there's going to be multiple systems in place simultaneously. Um, and uh, it's probably it's probably best to just get that out of the way right now and have a system in place um, that works for everybody. Could the prime minister be encouraging vaccination of those in the United States by saying you can't come in unless you're fully vaccinated? Yeah, I, I, I mean, certainly uh, in terms of you know what goes on at the border and in terms of travel, um, it could be made a requirement of travel. You know, there's no reason why why it it, it couldn't, or there's no reason why it shouldn't. Um, but again, it, you know, it's got to be something. Um, that is planned properly uh, and something uh, that is in place. And, and you know, probably it, it's got to, it, it, this is the time where, where that has to, has to, has to be discussed and, and, you know, there has to be some sort of uh, regulation put in place right now uh, before it goes too far. So what do you think the biggest challenge is for Canadians now moving forward, coming out of this, seeing the light, actually feeling the warmth of it on their face? What's the biggest challenge moving forward here, Doctor? I think the biggest challenge right now is, you know, when we look at um, the end of the second wave, which, you know, it never really ended. It was, you know, the third wave was a continuation of the second wave. You know, we came out of the second wave. We started opening things up. We were around 1,000 cases per day or just under 1,000 cases per day 
uh, in Ontario at that time when we reopened. Um, and, um, you know, we went, went right back into things in the third wave, which is, you know, kind of, it, it's been a very hard uh, wave for multiple reasons, both, on, you know, just in terms of society and, and, and who society's so tired of it and, and the hospital pressures. So I think everybody is naturally feeling that they want to get out there. It's, it's summer, it's beautiful. Everybody is vaccinated or a lot of people are vaccinated and we have that, that sense of protection. Um, and, you know, we are probably going to be more protected now than at the end of the second wave uh, when we didn't have that vaccination effect and we are going to open up now um, and we likely will not see the rebound that we saw between the second and third wave because we do have the vaccination effect. Uh, but that vulnerability is still there. You know, we still have the, 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 the variant of concern out there. Um, we still have a lot of unvaccinated people. Um, and, and so it is possible that, that we are going to see rebound. And all the modeling shows that, you know, we likely will have uh, a fourth wave. Uh, it probably uh, will not be anywhere as severe uh, as the third wave, but it is most likely going to happen uh, come the fall. So I think going forward, we just have to keep in mind that, you know, even though this feels like that there's a light at the end of the tunnel here, uh, we are still going to be feeling this for some time to come, and uh, and we really can't let our guard down. So that's the only thing. I mean, we, we have to be able to enjoy ourselves. We have to be able to live our lives, which which I think we're going to do. Uh, but but I think we still have to take this measured approach, which I think we've been pretty good at uh, in Ontario. Some some might say that you know we were perhaps with public health measures that we we, we took it a little bit too far, perhaps. Um, and then they've been going on for too long. But in reality, these are the things that have been helping us, and, and these are the things that have been getting us out of, of, of this issue, and, and these are going to be the things that keep us from falling back into this problem. So, you know, just we have to be ready to, to, to live our lives and, and go about our business, but we also uh, have to really be cognizant that, that we're not out of this. Are you surprised we haven't seen more of a rebound, as you put it, in the United States? I mean, uh, I remember seeing the, the Jays opener in Texas, and it was jammed back then in the stadium. And everybody's thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen in a couple of weeks? Obviously, they've been ramping up vaccination, but it has really slowed down. Uh, and and although they have more vaccinated with their, with their second dose uh, than most, uh, again, there is that hesitancy. Are you surprised that we haven't seen some sort of variant rebound with what they're doing well so they you know like you said they they've they've been very rapid in their in their uh, vaccination um, escalation uh, which i think has played a huge role they also have a, a a large part of their population that at this point still has natural immunity uh from from having been infected i mean over 10 percent of the u.s population uh, had covid uh, so, so there, there is that aspect of it too, and so, you know, I think when you put all that together, um, they, they, they are perhaps more protected um, than than um, we were at that point in, in Canada. 
but I do think with with um, with what's going on with variants uh, and and just in general with the rapid opening up, it is possible that going forward we are going to see pockets in the states of these these localized epidemics. So. So I, I think it's a little too early to say that that you know they're completely out, out of the woods and and you know everything is is going to be great there. Uh, I think only time will tell. Dr. Lauren Small with us, infectious disease specialist and medical director of infectious uh, infection prevention and control with Trillium Health Partners. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, this is fascinating. A new survey from IWG, the world's largest flexible workspace and office provider, suggests that ma- the magic number is 15 minutes. That's how long we want our commute to be. Uh, anything more than that, we may not be interested. How has life changed in a pandemic? You know, at the beginning of this, many said, uh, I can't wait to get back to normal. Now that we're over a year and a bit past it, it's uh, I don't necessarily want that new normal. Let's bring in Wayne Berger, CEO of the Americas for IWG, and is with us now. Wayne, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, good afternoon, Scott. Doing great, trying to work towards my own 15-minute commute. I hear you. I hear you. So how has this pandemic changed the way we view life? Yeah, it's been really remarkable. Um, you know, if you think about it, we've all been living through this, you know, complete COVID bubble over the last 17 months with many of us working from, many often working from home over the last period. But now what's happening is it's, as we start to transition post-pandemic and vaccination rates increase, this whole return to work and return to workplace strategy is shifting so dramatically. And it's one of these elements that people are not as interested in returning back to what it looked like pre-pandemic. People are looking for flexibility and the ability to be able to shift how, when, and where they actually call work. It's fascinating at the beginning of this, as I said in the preamble, uh, everybody couldn't wait to get back to normal at the beginning. Now it's, uh, I don't know. So this has just been long enough to absolute may, absolutely have an effect on us. The commute, the commute uh, topic, obviously huge through the greater Toronto Hamilton area. How are companies going to react to this? Well, I think companies, and so I think one of the nice things is companies and workers are actually working together aligned because What's taken place is companies have recognized that their traditional office has sat empty for the last 16 months as people have been working from home. And workers are discovering that, you know, working from home for a period of time makes a lot of sense. And the idea of having to travel to one dedicated place five days a week only to at many times put your laptop down, your phone down in order to conduct what was known as work is a thing of the past. What's happening now is workers are starting to look at their schedules and they're not just asking, but they're requiring their employers to start to look at flexible ways to manage time. People are starting to look at their calendars and saying, you know, instead of being centric to one location, my days and weeks and frankly hours of the day really require me to be able to work differently. And that also means working differently geographically. So workers and employers are looking to help people be able to balance their schedule differently. And that doesn't mean just working from home. It means coming to the office when it makes sense for both groups, more of a destination that may happen once a week, and then working from home for some hours of the day or maybe a couple of days a week because 
the time is needed to put your head down and be productive. And that way you can eliminate these long commutes. And then there's, then there's the middle zone, the flex zone, where people want the ability to be able to move past this idea of traveling to an office or an average commute, sometimes upwards of hour to an hour and a half, and yeah. actually getting getting those 90 to three hours back in their day, which gives them the opportunity to be more productive, gives them the opportunity to be able to spend more time focusing on getting the results done, and then also having the benefits of time that we've seen here over the last 18 months, which is being closer to family, to friends, balancing out their schedules. So still being incredibly productive, but frankly, eliminating, eliminating inefficient time of commutes. Many would just naturally assume if you're at home, you're not working at hard. You're, you know, you're, uh, you're bagging off. You're not doing anything. Uh, and many have talked about the hybrid version of what about the opposite extreme? People working too much. My wife and I have talked about this that, yeah. you know, that hour you're not spending commuting. You're just working harder. So how yeah. do you balance that out? Even if you get a hybrid version. Well, you're right. What we've seen right now is working from home has has created a significant amount of fatigue because people have been working, have been working longer hours and also just not having much shift during their day. The days have been so tactical from start to finish, just pounding through essentially lists of items. And and what, what we're seeing is, number one, one, one of the most popular new positions in companies right now is what's known as the chief health officer. The ability to help employees and organizations have the right health and wellness plan in place because they're asking their employees to be able to take a step back from, from just having to, you know, start that essentially that, let's call it that, that, that work day and continue right through without a break. So, so a few things are happening is, um, one, organizations are, are, are requiring their teams and asking their, their employees to take a break and shift and add, add, some, uh, add some variability through the day. And then also what we're seeing is um, people really miss the pre-day and post-day routine. Um, so the, what people are looking for is the ability to be able to step away from their homes and be able to frankly walk or maybe bike 15 minutes to be able to go to a workplace that gives them a separation of right. home and work and then start that daily routine, be able to add some flexibility in, uh, and then from there be able to have more, more, more access to, to different options and, and the opportunity to have some social, social interaction as well in a workplace that takes a step away from a Zoom meeting. A 15-minute commute, man, that's just almost imaginable. Are you surprised at the uh, the numbers here? A combined 88% would prefer to work either entirely from home, a hybrid uh, home office version, all of that. Uh, so this is quite quite a significant shift. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, you're right. And well, I, we weren't surprised um, because what's interesting is Everything we, everything that we've been living, living through today as workers and just as, you know, as, as, uh, as, as, as humans at this point through a pandemic has been focused in through the lens of a pandemic. But now what's happening as vaccination rates continue to accelerate and we're starting to see phase one reopening here on Friday. What's happening now is people are starting to recognize that there are some great benefits towards the time we've had in addition with families and friends and, 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 and just the, the health and wellness aspect of that. And then what we're seeing is 
the inefficiencies that that have taken place in the past when we've we've always kind of worked the same way. Like what's happening now is workers are really going through this renaissance. We're taking a step away from just the industrial revolution process of traveling all the time to one designated workplace. We recognize that work can be done in different places. And what's happening today is we're starting to make this shift post-pandemic where one of the biggest global trends we have to pay attention to is the impact on the environment and the impact on health and wellness. And that's where this five to 15 minute commute plays a key role. You imagine the the opportunity to eradicate CO2 emissions by cutting down on these long commutes. And then also mm. just frankly, the ability to be more realistically productive with our time is really powerful. And I think that's one of the benefits that have been lent to us through the, uh, through the pandemic is recognizing that work doesn't always have to be synonymous with one place. It's mm. really about flexibility. And, and, and frankly, employees are looking at this now as a requirement moving forward moving forward versus a nice to have. This is going to be huge. Uh, the, the template is about to change. And you mentioned the industrial mm-hmm. revolution, uh, all of that, uh, the technological revolution. We'll look back at this uh, 50 years from now, and and uh, we'll be teaching it in class. Uh, Wayne Berger uh, with the CEO of the Americas for IWG. Wayne, thanks for the time. Fascinating issue. Good luck. Thanks for having us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, truth before reconciliation. And um, I think it's very important that the students and the survivors uh, get a full and proper apology, and that has not yet been made yet. It's recognition, it's respect, it's healing. It's, it's all part before a person can move on from hurt and pain and abuse. Part of the perpetrator should acknowledge that their, uh, their complicity, that they're complicit. I see Perry Bellegarde and how we move forward. After uh, the discovery of the remains of 215 students below a former Kamloops residential school, how have our feelings changed on this? Uh, and why now? Let's bring in Dave Schultz, Executive Vice President of Leger, and is with us now. Dave, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for having me on the show. How do you explain how this situation in Kamloops has resonated uh, with Canadians? Why do you think this has had such an impact now? Oh, it's, it's a hard one to answer why. I think it, it goes to everything um, that we feel as Canadians as to who we are. And I think when the, when the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out, uh, there, those were uh, stories but a lot of words. And this has made it real for a lot of people, uh, real enough to the point where in our most recent survey, um, pe- people are questioning the moral foundation that Canada has been based on. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating how, um, how we've addressed this, how we've realized this, and, and how our thoughts have moved, ha- have moved as a result of this. Is this a tipping point in Canada, in your view? It's quite possibly a tipping point. Um, I think, in general, we're seeing a we're seeing a fair number of tipping points. And I know we're not here to talk about what happened in London a few days ago, but mm-hmm. I think Go ahead. there's it, it's all tied together with um, you know talks from Black Lives Matters last year to Asian hate to now the, now the the Kamloops Residential School uh, and to the event that happened in London. It's all tied around. Um, finding finding a way to, to combat hate. Uh, 
Uh, 66% of Canadians think the church should bear the responsibility for the tragedies committed at residential schools. 34% thinks the government of Canada should be held responsible. Uh, I've talked about this at length on the show and how over the years uh, the, the Catholic Church has not uh, apologized, admitted responsibility, claimed responsibility for any of this. Um, but now the focus really seems to be on the Catholic Church, are, uh, and less so much the government. But both of these were involved, uh, both of these institutions were involved in, in not only the design, but the implementation of these schools. Are we looking for someone to blame here? A, a little bit, and we very specifically asked this question in an either-or. You couldn't answer both are to blame for this. So it's telling that the Catholic Church comes out as a two-to-one uh leader in terms of, of responsibility and, and accepting responsibility for this. I also look at our, our government has, you know, in, in their own way, been addressing it and talking to it and apologizing for uh, th- these instances over time. The Catholic Church comes out with what we call a pseudo-apology, where um, they they hear us, they uh, understand that uh, uh this is a bad thing, but they're not actually saying we're sorry for this. And that, has, that upsets people. And how much has this changed before and after Kamloops, do you think? How much is this attitude, how much has Kamloops affected this attitude? I, I, of the church or of Canadians' attitudes towards the church? Both. I, well, I, I don't know about the church, can't speak for them, but uh, I think from a Canadian's perspective, it's put the church in the spotlight uh, again, as, as really, what are you doing to acknowledge this? And it's one of the, the key points in the Truth and Reconciliation Report to help people move forward. The church needs to acknowledge their role in this, apologize for this, and allow people to move forward. And these results where it's 66% of Canadians really tells us that's a, that's a direction that we need to be going. And what's interesting uh, we- is the breakdown of age. And it's really it's older Canadians, um, people who are 35 plus, who are more likely to feel that uh, this is really a church. The church really needs to step up in this case. Really, wow, that's it. What do you what do you take from that? Uh, you know, I've been trying to figure this out all days. Or you know, we got the numbers on this. Um, it's I, I think because uh, for a lot of us, we haven't had the type of I, no one's really had this type of education in school, and we've lived through and seen. And I'm putting it—you know, obviously I'm in that much, much older category. Uh, but uh, we've lived through, we've seen, we've heard about the reports that have come out. We know that the possibility of this uh, has existed, and possibly for some of the younger people, this is this is news to them. Hmm. You know, but it's interesting overall. 80% of Canadians think this, what hap- what we found at Kamloops is just the tip of the iceberg. And looking for a uh, resolution on the rest of these sites as well, demanding the rest of these sites be searched. Definitely demanding the rest of these sites be searched, uh, but also demanding that it's being done with Indigenous families and communities involved and deciding what's going to go on forward. When we're talking about the Catholic Church, a lot of this gets directed directly to the Pope. Uh, but from what I understand, it's the Canadian Association of Bishops that have to arrange all of that before the Pope actually does uh, make some comment. So uh, 
do you think Canadians are aware of that? They constantly pope, uh, point the finger to the Pope, but from what I understand, it's it's the Canadian Association of Bishops that are preventing this from happening, or the releasing of records that needed and, and such. Uh, I, I don't, you know. I, again, we didn't ask those questions. Yeah. But from uh, from what you read and see, it doesn't. You know, there is that call for the Pope, um, but just like with anything, if a company does something wrong. It's a call for the CEO, even though, because that is the ultimate responsibility right. of that organization. All right, let's uh, move to land borders, because this is interesting as well, as chatter goes on in regard to opening the U.S. and Canadian border. Uh, I think the Prime Minister said today, or in the last day or so, that he wants uh, Americans fully vaccinated before they cross the border, and Canadians... Uh, to be, I think, 75 with the first dose, 75%, and then 25% uh, with the second dose. Uh, what, are your fi- what are you finding with le- the conversation around land borders? I, I actually, this is one of those ones where U.S. and Canada are at the polar opposite in terms of response. Yeah. Because we asked this survey question to all Canadians and Americans. And basically, the question was, you know, do you support or oppose reopening the border to allow tourists to enter your country? And uh, 78% of Americans support the opening of the border compared to only 36% of Canadians. And it's really not about wanting to allow tourists into the country. For, for the people, we're both in Canada and the U.S. who want the border open, it's about, I want to go there. I want to travel to the U.S. Or from an American perspective, I want to travel to Canada. There's still going to be lots of debate over this, isn't there? There, there is, and... Uh, you know, I, I like the way this is following down. Obviously, politicians are listening to their pollsters because you hear American uh, politicians uh, calling for the borders to open. You hear Canadians calling for it to stay closed. And that is along with what popular uh, public opinion is at right now. All right. How are we feeling in general about this global pandemic? January, February, March, uh, April, pretty dire and and fatiguing times for everyone, including Canadians uh, waiting for vaccine to arrive. But slowly our 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 moods are changing. Accurate? Accurate. And for the last, I would say, eight waves that we've been tracking this, we've seen a steady decline in mental health. And I I think last time I talked with you, I said we were at the lowest point in the entire pandemic when it came yeah. to mental health. Uh, there's been a major rebound in the last last week. Uh, we are up from 28% feeling that they are in a positive mental health state to 36, 34% now. So that's uh, a 6% uh, increase, and it's, uh, it's good to see it start to happen. And a lot of that's related to uh, vaccines are getting into arms yeah. and case counts are going down. But uh, Canadians and Americans both pretty close when it comes to thinking the worst of all of this is behind us. That's positive. And that is that is very positive. And that the general optimism moving forward, uh, we're a little more optimistic. 62% of us feel that we're optimistic for the next year compared to only 50% of Americans. But in general, the, the optimism is positive. And for the first time since March 23rd, 2020, Less people are, sorry, more people say they are not afraid of getting the virus than say they are afraid of getting the virus. Hmm. And that's that's the first time in, you know, 14 months of tracking this. So that's another positive find to see here. 
All right, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, although it isn't over yet. Keep digging. Dave Schultz with us, Executive VP of Leger. Dave, as always, thanks so much for the time. Fascinating stuff. Be well. All right, thank you. Take care. Last week, the discovery and uh, the reporting of a Kamloops residential school and what was found below that former site, and that being the remains of 215 students uh, that passed away during the time there. And uh, nobody knows uh, why, how, or identifi- uh, identification of uh, some of these are unmarked graves, and there's fights for records to to find out exactly what is going on. There's fights for an apology from uh, the Catholic Church, and you have to ask yourself how uh, Canada, uh, at this turning point, is going to uh, move forward with all of this. Uh, we certainly see the ceremony. We certainly hear the words, uh, but these issues uh, continue. And one of uh, the examples of that is uh, the government's continuing fight for Indigenous compensation in, in court. And from what I understand, what this is about is whose responsibility is it? Is it provincial or federal? And in the end, of course, uh, it's volleyed back and forth and, uh, and nothing, gets, uh, nothing gets done at this point. Uh, let's play you a clip of uh, federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and what he had to say on this issue. The harm suffered is not kind of a historic thing in the past. It's an ongoing, unbroken legacy of harm against Indigenous people. The genocide didn't stop. What happened to Indigenous children in residential schools, that discrimination and that mistreatment, continues in Indigenous child welfare to today. And right now, what we've called for in a motion that passed yesterday was that, on one hand, Justin Trudeau took a stand saying that he is Uh, sad about what happened in Kamloops and expressed condolences. But in the other breath, he is currently fighting Indigenous children in court, despite the fact that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found that these kids, these Indigenous children, were willfully and recklessly discriminated by, against, by the Canadian government. And that despite that, and despite the ruling and multiple orders, the Canadian government, via Justin Trudeau, is currently fighting that case, appealing that case in court. And we said, drop the court case, stop fighting these kids. It's the same legacy. All right, let's bring in Peter Grave, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Let's start with this case and and what happened yesterday uh, in the House of Commons and such. Uh, uh, obviously, this is in court in regard to compensation of uh, kids in, of residential schools, and it seems to be a, uh, a decision over whether this is a provincial jurisdiction over a federal jurisdiction. Is this case worthy? Should we even be going there? Is this important at this time? Well, I mean, clearly, it's important for the government to uh, to be appealing the, the you know a number of these you know different cases. I mean, I think the one in, in question is about compensation. Uh, you know, and, and ultimately, in the government's own uh, view, they're you know asking some questions about the jurisdiction of the uh, Human Rights Tribunal, and uh, you know whether it can make an order to you know give a certain sum. I think it was uh, you know forty thousand dollars of compensation for kids who were you know taken in this manner from their homes. Uh, or you know, the government's argument is that they would rather have a modulated thing based on the kind of severity of the case. Right? So that's a the sort of arguments that the government is making is that ultimately they you know have no trouble paying the compensation but there's some important points of law they have to argue and you know it gets it gets a bit convoluted but that seems to be what's driving the government in this uh you know to try ultimately i, I presume to on the one hand uh, you know have the policy design at once in terms of how this compensation is paid out 
and secondly, probably trying to you know have certain precedents that probably limit the liability of the Canadian state to paying compensation in the future. So uh, does this demand clarity, or are we just punting this down the field? Well, I mean, again, these are probably things that usefully could be clarified in law uh, to make it clearer. But at the same time, I think, you know, the argument that you have uh, a bunch of uh, people whose rights were infringed, uh, you know, they can't wait forever (laughs) for compensation. And so, you know, a response of a government that, oh, there's these important points of law, um, so just wait another couple of years, it doesn't seem to be very responsive to the the important needs, uh, you know, of the claimants in this case. So... You know, I think it's one of these, you know, situations where there's a decision made to put legality in sorting out the questions of law and presumably protecting the government uh, down the down the line takes precedence over uh, kind of a much more keenly sense, uh, felt sense of justice about, uh, you know, compensating people who, who had their rights infringed in, in a pretty severe manner as children. Will this encourage them to speed up any due diligence that has to be taken? Uh, I doubt it <laughs> in many ways. I mean... I think we're in a situation where the Canadian state is more responsive than it was, say, 10 or 20 years ago, you know, recognizing that uh, public opinion has shifted and that, in addition, you know, the Canadian state has made some important uh, commitments through the process of reconciliation. And so the old way of, you know, doing, uh, you know, the absolute minimum uh, or, you know, ignoring or sandbagging, you know, can't go on quite as before. But I think the sort of ingrained habits of thinking about how do you protect the state from these kinds of claims is probably pretty uh, strong within those ministries and there therefore also the tendency uh, to be listening to the legal advice saying you know you have to you know you can't admit this or have you know this kind of precedent set because then it opens you up to right all these other uh, claims for compensation uh, you know given as we discover that there's uh, you know no shortage of acts that uh, were committed uh, you know over the course of over a century that might give claims to certain forms of repair rec- uh, or, or compensation. Can we ever deal with all of those, Peter, or is is it is there just too many? Is it just too much? Is this one of those situations where um, you, you just have to move forward and 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 deal with the future and and come up, come up with a plan that that is suitable? I mean, is there any way you can resolve all of these issues? I mean, I think we won't resolve all these issues. Um, yeah. I think they're just too many. But, uh, you know, it's a bit like if someone sideswipes my car and that says that's too bad, but now can we just go forward together? Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> there might be some repair that's needed in, in that yeah. relationship. Yeah. And so, right. uh, so, I mean, I think, you know, we have to think about this as something that's happening, you know, on different time scales. There's things that we can, you know, uh, confront and deal with today. There's others that are going to take longer. Uh, you know, there's some things where there are, in fact, people in, you know, in situations where you can uh, realistically think about, you know, damages and compensation and a kind of more individual level repair. But then the other piece of it is how do we, uh, you know, deal with the bigger questions of governance and uh, kind of coexistence and partnership uh, as communities on a kind of a larger time scale? And, and how do we repair those things so that going forward we don't have uh, you know, as many, uh, you know, problematic uh, ways of, of interacting. So, I mean, you know, again, I, I think uh, most of us uh, were shocked by the discovery at the Kamloops uh, Residential School, and then we probably weren't actually that surprised, given that what we've learned about these things in the past, you know, decade as a kind of learning moment. And so I think we should expect to continue to see uh, these things come forward. I, I mean, I don't think we've talked a lot about the 60s scoop 
Uh, we still have to talk about, as you pointed out in the, the uh, beginning, what, what, how do we deal with the fact that so many Indigenous children are caught up in our foster care systems in the different provinces and child protection systems? You know, those kinds of questions, uh, you know, will be with us for the next, uh, you know, 20 or 50 years. And so part of it is how do we find ways of, of dealing with them. But I think, again, you know, there will be very specific demands for compensation uh, and reasons why those have to be engaged. And there's also the need to, to be thinking the more collective and longer-term time scale. So in regard to the court cases, the House of Commons votes yesterday, the significance of this, it's largely uh, uh, symbolic, but what what is the significance of this? Or is it just politics? Well, I mean, I think some of it is uh, has a significance in inviting us to not consider what happened in Kamloops, which, you know, may have been a century ago, as something that's ended. And that doesn't, you know, doesn't tell us something about some of these current conflicts, right? Maybe it invites us to look differently at this court case and to say, well, is is the legal argument really that pressing uh, as compared to, you know, arguments for uh, ensuring justice for those, uh, uh, you know, for those claimants? Um, But yeah, there's also, I think, a politics part in it, because we have the parties that are trying to uh, be on the side of virtue and show the other parties to be on, you know, the, the whatever the side of not virtue is. And I mean, clearly that was part of Mr. Singh's motivation in bringing forward this motion. Was, you know, on the one hand, to say, well, you know, uh, we don't have residential schools anymore, but there's important questions about child welfare that have to be dealt with. But of course, the other part of it was to show that Mr. Trudeau was a hypocrite, <laughs> or at least I think was the, the, the main part of, of that kind of politically. And again, you know, using the fact that the liberal um, the liberal cabinet uh, voted against the motion. That was my next question. What does that say? The fact that uh, the, the prime minister and the cabinet abstained. Well, I mean, in a kind of a pure sense of how uh, parliament works, it makes sense because ultimately, uh, you know, the decision of the government is to appeal uh, is to appeal this. And so, if cabinet ministers were to you know vote in favor of a motion uh, opposing that. They would be breaking, um, you know, their ranks of cabinet solidarity, and right. they'd be expected to resign. Uh, but again, I mean, Mr. Singh can count on the kind of ignorance of Canadians about this kind of minor point of, you know, parliamentary procedure to sort of raise questions about, you know, the commitment to the Liberals. Although behind that, obviously, I mean, it's the Liberal Party that's government and is is deciding to go forward with this. So maybe it tells us that there's a, a divergence even between the Liberal Party and, and many of its members that voted for the motion and the government that they form, which is going the other way. Um, and so that there is a, a certain, I mean, maybe hypocrisy is too strong a term, but there's a, a lack of consistency between, you know, what is claimed uh, to be what they stand for and, and what they're willing to do as a government. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, uh, and, and as you mentioned, I mean, there is a certain amount of politics here, uh, but was obviously very passionate and emotional about it, saying, do something. Um, what should, what can government do? Uh, obviously, there's the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Um, the Prime Minister has slowly been, you know, trying to, to, to check those off. What else can or what should uh, government do here? Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's no shortage of places to start. And, I mean, I think we could say that the Trudeau government in its first mandate uh, did accelerate motion, uh, particularly on the truth and reconciliation uh, recommendations. Uh, I think the pandemic has thrown off uh, the government. Uh, You know, again, I think get that moving requires a lot of political leadership, and the leadership's been elsewhere. But certainly, I think continuing to push on uh, truth and reconciliation is important. 
I mean, there's also, you know, significant gaps in uh, in services. So, again, there's been, you know, a push around clean water, which, again, uh, you know, the more is being done, but there's still a ways to go. So, you know, in a way, I think we're faced with a government which has, you know, signaled good intentions, has shown some evidence of trying to improve on a variety of different fronts. But, you know, progress is slow, and I think in many ways has been put on the shelf for the past year as attention has been placed elsewhere. And when that happens, I think things kind of go back into their grooves of how they were normally done before. Uh, your thoughts on, obviously, what we've seen with statues, some calling for names to be removed from institutions. Uh, your thoughts on that? Where, man, it's interesting having this discussion uh, before and after a pandemic or even before or after what's happened in Kamloops. It's, it's changing so much. But, but what do we do in regard to the discussion of, of statues and, and names? Well, I mean, uh, you know, ultimately, those are collective decisions we make about whether we want these institutions to hold certain names uh, as a kind of form of celebration uh, of those people or, you know, of, of what's being named after it. And I think it's only consistent that if on time we come to have a different appreciation, that we might decide that we no longer want to have that kind of recognition. You know, I think about how I uh, teach about Confederation and uh, Sir John A. Macdonald uh, now compared to, uh, you know, when I started out maybe 20 years ago. Hmm. You know, as I've learned more, uh, the way you teach and the appreciation, you know, changes because, you know, ultimately uh, you come to somewhat different assessments. I mean, always these people were, you know, complicated and, you know, we were celebrating them in a kind of one-dimensional sense uh, for a long time. I mean, Macdonald, I think could have the laurel of being the first prime minister, and for seven generations, you know, we, he was probably venerated more than he necessarily needed to be. Uh, I think now we're in a period where maybe we'll go seven generations of asking questions about his relationship to things like residential schools or, you know, the starving of peoples to displace him off the plains. You know, maybe in another century we come to, you know, a different appreciation uh, of that. But I think part of reconciliation ultimately is to say, you know, the history that we've been told, telling for a long time has to be reconciled, has to be brought in dialogue with, you know, another way of thinking about that history and what emerges out of that. And so I think in the moment, the changing of names and statues is, is a moment of reaction to engaging that uh, conversation. You know, where we end up in 50 or 100 years, uh, who knows how we'll, we'll come back and, and think about some of these figures. And even on that note, it's just fascinating chatting with my kids who are now teenagers and what they have or were taught compared to what I was taught, which was nothing. It's amazing how that had been the case for so long. Are we blaming others instead of ourselves? Uh, you know, right now there's, uh, you know, lots of chatter about uh, bringing the Catholic Church uh, into an apology, or, or which would obviously mean some sort of compensation or restitution in some way. Um, are we using the Catholic Church in order to, or even these symbols, instead of accepting responsibility uh, ourselves? Um, you know, easier to blame the church than government. It takes two to have this situation. Uh, and this uh, agreement to to move forward, and in the end, it wasn't it Canadians who voted for all of these leaders. Yeah, I mean, obviously the churches have their part of it, and that was you know important part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, report. And I mean, part of the settlement, in a way, was uh, you know the government acting to to prevent the churches being bankrupted with these claims. So, in a way, the churches 
kind of maybe got off a bit easy, although in their own way they've engaged in forms of reconciliation. And I think, you know, we can ask tough questions about where the Catholic Church is at, uh, you know, as compared to some of the other churches in engaging and being responsible for that, you know, in the refusal of making an apology, for instance. But having said that, I mean, you know, again, I think in this case we have the Prime Minister uh, criticizing the Vatican a bit, uh, but I think, again, that's a form of deflection, right? It's part of this this Mm -hmm. political play. Um, yeah, quite clearly at the base of it was the, the Canadian state, which decided to work in, in conjunction with the churches to, uh, to develop these schools. But, I mean, the state did its, it did its uh, inquiries about what was happening. Like, you can go back a century or yeah. 80 years and read some of the reports from these different residential schools, and they told, uh, you know, the most uh, you know, terrible stories about what was happening, the rates of death from, you know, venereal disease in addition to things like tuberculosis, uh, and clearly the state didn't act in response to those. So, yeah, the churches have their part of the story, but I think Canadians collectively as a political community, uh, you know, really have to address the part that, that ties them to the Canadian state, which, again, was complicit and all, and knowing throughout uh, this whole history. Again, you know, Canadians were there too. It just wasn't these leaders. Uh, and these leaders were backed by other Canadians. As you've mentioned, this has been well documented. Uh, my goodness, going back to the, uh, the turn of the last century. So, um, is it right for Canadians to now lash out and point fingers at others when it was society as much as John A. Macdonald, as much as Ryerson, it was society as much as the Catholic Church. Are we looking for someone to blame to make us feel better when in the end it was our own citizenry that let this happen? Yeah, I mean, although part of, I think, building statues to people is that we kind of see in those people the reflection of what we value. So Eggert and Ryerson, we put up yeah. a statue because public education is something that we, we've come to value, and we, we've, you know, we saw that in him. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously these were uh, collective choices, and they were sustained by Canadians really not caring about what was happening, yeah. either, you know, ignoring it or, you know, not feeling that they had any, uh, that they were related to these people who were suffering by any kind of bonds of community uh, or, you know, reciprocity. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an important part of the story to tell, and I think part of the, the current moment is to recognize that if we are to reconcile, part of that will involve giving up some things that, that at times have mattered to us, right? That, uh, you know, our way of, of being Canadians and thinking about what Canada is has to be reconciled with the uh, experience and views of Indigenous peoples. And that will be, you know, and sometimes painful in terms of, you know, is, is it a matter of giving land back? Is it a matter of changing how we run certain institutions? Uh, you know, in addition to simply questions of, you know, names and places and statues. Peter Grafe is with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, and the ongoing discussion, and it won't end anytime soon, of how Canada comes to terms with its relationship with its Indigenous community. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. And you too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.